Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the dog show with Julie Forbes. It's always great to be here, Eric. Fine Seattle spring day. Absolutely. And a great day to take your dog for a walk. Yes. Regardless of what breed your dog is, and we're going to be talking about that today, I'm super excited. I have a veterinary geneticist with me with Embark DNA Testing which is partnered with Cornell University. I have Dr. Aaron Chu on the line with me. Dr. Chu, welcome to the dog show. Thanks for inviting me, Julie. So I want to start off. So this is kind of a, um, I, ha- I don't think I've done a show about this, and we've been on the air for oh, eight years now. And wow. the world of... Uh, canine genetic testing is is actually at least as it is um, available to the general public is is just about a decade old is that right that is just about right the first commercially available dna test um, came on the market yeah in the early 2000s Um, but scientists have been using the dog as you know a model to discover novel mutations and disease mutations for years and years and years Cool. Um, now, I this is sort of a field like I'm. I'm really looking forward to learning uh, from you about how this works because my I think when I first started hearing about that that this was even available for people, for example. So we'll kind of start off talking about you know people who might want to do it if they have a mixed breed dog and they're not sure what mm-hmm. breeds their dog is and they can have this test done. I think when I was first hearing about it, it was sort of like, well, there's this one, but it only tests for this many breeds, or there's this one, it's, and it only kind of tests. So it was sort of like, well, you can do the test, but it's not n- necessarily going to give you a really clear answer. And I mm-hmm. think that was really more when this was much newer. And so I'm curious to hear how... Um, how is it now? You know, how how accurate is is the test? How reliable are they? And, um, you know, in general, and then also speaking specifically to yours, which I hear is the one you want to get. Yeah, Eric? Oh, I was just going to say, and if uh, Dr. Chu could speak up as much as possible or keep uh, the mouthpiece uh, a little closer. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's much is better. Is that Thank a little you. better? It is. Okay, Thanks great. so much. Yeah. Perfect. Thank lot. you. Oh, no worries. Thanks. Yeah, Eric. I'm just. I'm sitting outside enjoying this lovely weather in Ithaca, New York. So, um, you know, you don't get it very often out here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a great question that you asked, though, Julie, because I think that especially in the early days of commercial dog DNA testing, um, it really was kind of considered more of a novelty, right? Um, it was like, yeah, you might get some cool answers, but you might not be so sure that they're accurate. Yeah. You might be... You know, you might be kind of on the on the cusp there of whether this is just, you know, people throwing darts at a picture of a dog and saying, I don't, you know, seeing what reads they land on. Because, you know, I think sometimes that's what people think that we do, but that's not what we do. Um, and as far as breed identification, there are a large number of tests available through different companies. 
the reason they vary not only in price, but also sometimes in accuracy of results is just due to the density of the coverage of the genome. So when you're looking at read percentages, you're not looking at one mutation, right? We're looking at like, you should be looking at hundreds of thousands of mutations because what makes a dog read a dog read yes are these single point mutations that contribute to appearance, right? Whether the dog has a beard and eyebrows or not, whether the dog has long hair or not, whether the dog is curly haired, has a tail, has a long tail. Um, all of those things are actually single base mutations. But when you're looking for read, you've got to be looking for patterns of genes, patterns of sequences. Um, and so as far as accuracy, the more dense of a genotyping platform that can see these unique sequences all over the genome, the denser it is, the more accurate results are going to be, um, which leads me to MBARF. Um, so when, when you said, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the platform that was originally being used 10 years ago uh, were, I think, just about, it was under 1,000 genetic markers. It could be under 2,000. Um, my mind can't quite remember, but I think it's around the, the original iteration, the genotyping platform was about 1,800 markers, I believe. Now, MBARC uses 200,000 markers that mm. are scattered evenly across the genome. And so as far as accuracy, uh, we have gotten much, much better in the past 10 years. Um, and really, MBARC's genotyping platform is the gold standard um, for breed identification. It's actually the same chip uh, that canine genomicists around the world use, except we added about 70,000 proprietary markers. Uh, that directly query things like disease risk, coat color, coat traits, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So let's just take a step back. And will you explain just what you mean by genetic marker or genome or what is it like when you say how dense the how like that makes sense. I my um, degree is in animal science, so I have some base knowledge of genetics and biology and chemistry and all that stuff. But there's a lot of people who don't. Right. So how Absolutely. what is the um, just kind of some a little bit of information um, for the average person to kind of maybe understand a little bit more about what it is that you're when you're looking when you say like patterns or sequences? Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. Um, so we actually do get a lot of questions saying, so are you sequencing my dog back there? Um, and that is a, an intrinsic difference to what um, we do, what 23andMe does, uh, Ancestry.com. Um, we don't look at every single base in the dog's genome, mostly because that base costs, that costs about $1,000 an animal to run, Okay. Um, your average mammal has about 6 billion base pairs of genetic sequence that composes what we call their genome, right? Did you All say of their DNA sequence. Billion? Yes, billion. 6 okay. billion. We like to, we, we bring it down to gigabase, right? Um, and uh, so that's, yeah, 6 billion base pairs. Okay. Um, so that's a lot. And it's really hard to sequence all of those at a cost effective uh, price point, right? So what we do what Embark does and what um, a large number of other other companies do is we use something called a SNP chip. So okay. it, it's very cute. Um, but it's, <laughs> a SNP chip really is simply a silica-based platform to which we've anchored 
sequences of DNA, because you can make DNA, right? It's not hard to make DNA in a lab. Um, and what we've done actually is we've taken over 200,000 unique sequences that we know fall all over uh, the, the canine genome. Um, and we've anchored them to this chip. So first of all, that brings the cost of running a dog to way lower to something that your average consumer can afford. And because the dog is the way it is, and we can definitely talk about why dogs are so cool, why they're so great to study, um, because of the, the way they have been bred and developed in the past two or 300 years, um, 200,000 markers give you a really great picture of the dog's genome on a whole. So, mm-hmm. and so and you can imagine I'm casting a 200,000-point net over 6 billion points because I cannot, simply cannot look at all 6 billion of those points at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I talk about patterns, I mean, you know, these sequences, we know exactly where they lie in the genome. Uh, we can validate that they lie in one place and only one place. And so we can actually start making patterns out of these sequences. We can say, well, sequence A always goes with sequence B, but never goes with sequence B, right? You can start to see those patterns that we call those haplotypes start to differentiate with different breeds. That's how we call breeds. And the sequence is just four different proteins, right? I mean, when we're getting um, four in... Different- are they proteins? Nucleotides. nucleotides. Nope, they're not. They're not proteins. They're nucleotides. Okay. Um, so those are actually uh, the building block of DNA is called a nucleotide. And you're right. There are only four of them, um, and there are an infinite number of combinations uh, for any given length of sequence. Right? It's just a permutation, um, and and those four base pairs together will can and will do uh, code for every protein that's made in our body. The DNA codes for RNA, RNA becomes protein. Proteins are kind of the key to modern life, but it's all blueprinted in the DNA, if you will. Okay, so this is just crazy to think about. There's like two main, you know, to to totally way oversimplify this conversation, but there's like two main... realms of of major mystery still to us one is genetics and two is space right (laughs) so it's like when you're thinking about genetics and that there's so that are they a g c i know there's like one that switches out a g c t u one of them's you ma'am that u is the t analog in rna so we don't deal with rna okay so it's a g c t Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, dusting off the cobwebs there. Um, so, <laughs> so, so there's those are the four A G C T, and that's the first letter of the name of the nucleotide. And they, you said um, so, right? So, are whatever whatever that is, right? Stands for. Mm-hmm. And then yep. there's so they pair up. So now there's yeah. a certain there's like. Uh, one that pairs with, or are there, um, can one pair with any of the other three? No. So that's a, that's a great point. So in, and I'm going to say this in general, okay. um, because, you know, biology, uh, there are always exceptions to the rule, but in general, C's can only bind to D's and T's can only bind to A's. Now, 
that's in the context of double-stranded DNA. Um, That is how our DNA exists in our bodies. Um, It's not only a way to make sure there's always going to be a template for DNA replication, right, because you've always got two copies of every gene hanging out. Uh, It's also a way to keep the DNA safe. Double-stranded DNA is much more resistant to degradation than than single-stranded. Okay, so you've got Um, these pairs, and, mm-hmm. you, and it, you know, A, G, and then, and so, you know, and, and then it's, it goes up, like, if you think of, like, a ladder. So each rung of a ladder, w- there's one, um, one letter on one side, one letter on the other, and they're connected by the rung. And then you go up to the next rung, and there's another letter on one mm-hmm. side and another letter on the other, and they're connected. And the sequence yeah. is, is, is six billion ladder rungs long six yes. six billion entire genome sequence yes. right is six billion different pairs and so when you say there's an infinite number of possibilities of how those could sequence like once it could be a a uh mm-hmm. you know whatever right and it, mm-hmm. so, that there, I mean, really, like, infinite number of, of possibilities. And so the technology that's enabled us to, to gather this this information is just incredible that we've even done it. So yeah. you've been able to take enough to basically, um, like, 200,000 of those pairs, you've been able to mm-hmm. identify with a certain sequence. So can you give an example of, like, okay, we figured out this little slice of of the genome is a sequence that means that the dog has a curly tail yeah okay um curly tail actually curly tail we haven't mapped yet and and um i'll get in trouble with my chief science officer if i use curly tail because it's actually been really hard to map okay (laughs) but um we'll use let's use um let's use bobtail so you know how some dogs are born without a tail yeah they're just born that way yeah we call that the natural bobtail and it's kind of you know, um, what's the word? It's, it's signature for breeds like the Pembroke Welsh Corgi um, and and the Jack Russell Terrier, some of them, uh, not all of them, actually. But that's actually a single mutation in a gene called the T gene. Um, and it actually causes a vertebral segmentation in, and in these dogs that have a single mutation, the last few vertebrae of the tail just never develop. Okay. Okay. Um, a single base pair, and and so what we can do is okay, we found the causative mutation. Now with a chip, then you can design a probe, which is let's say 30 base pairs long. It can vary depending on the probe, and that's going to have the sequence on either side of the single mutation, right? So 15 base pairs on one side, 15 base pairs on the other. And then we can design two probes, one that has the original wild type or ancestral sequence where dogs have a normal long tail. And then we can design another probe where dogs um, with has mutation and dogs have that mutation and they get a short tail. So that means that then if we process a a given dog's DNA correctly and we wash their DNA over that probe, the probe wants to anneal, like you said, to its complementary ladder rung, right? It wants to find the other pair. Um, and so the mutation will only anneal or stick, right, to the probe that has that same complementary mutation on it. 
Got it. Um, so, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like looking, looking it's, for its other half, sort of. And if it exactly, finds it, if it finds it, then it. it lets you know that it's there. Yes. Yes. Got that's it. exactly right. And so the great thing is not only can we say, oh, this dog has one copy or this dog has the mutation. We can even tell you how many copies of the mutation the dog has just by counting whether the dog's DNA anneals to the ancestral sequence, the mutation, or both. Hmm. So Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty okay. cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot there. Okay, so, so let's talk about, thank you for sort of explaining some information about genomes and sequencing and what it all means. It's kind of like writing... I mean, I just I always think of like computer codes, which I really know very little about, but it's, you know, <clears throat> just these long strands of combinations of very simple. But the but the complexity because of the size of it um, is what what creates, you know, in the in the context of dogs, you know, what creates this dog to look this way, this dog to look that way. And then we're not even going to get into behavior yet. And then also uh, diseases and stuff. So let's stick with breeds. So I have a question. So, mm-hmm. so and we actually are testing, um, we're using the Embark DNA test. And the website there, if you want to check it out, is EmbarkVet.com. And we are having our old dog haven dog, Lois. And Dr. Chu, if you're not familiar, old dog haven is a really... Uh, wonderful, the largest in the country rescue organization that specifically rescues oh. old dogs. So oh, that's we, wonderful. Yeah, they're they're awesome. And Lois, it, we've had now for almost three years. Actually, next next week, I'm we're celebrating our three year adoptiversary. Um, she's <laughs> about fifteen, and we don't know what she is. We think maybe she's a chow mix, but we don't know. And so we're actually going to um, uh, do this test for her and get the results. And I know it takes a few weeks, so we'll have to report. We'll have to do a follow-up, and, and I'll let everybody know what Lois's results are, but I'm really excited about that. But I have a question about, because dog breeds, like, for example, we have uh, two of our dogs are Australian cattle dogs. And mm-hmm. Australian cattle dog as a breed was like many breeds were made up of other breeds that already existed, right? So can mm-hmm. the can the tests now distinguish like is it gonna show up as Australian cattle dog or is it gonna show up as one of the older breeds that was used to make Australian cattle dog? Mm-hmm. I love that you asked that question, and thank you so much for asking, because it's, it's actually so relevant, because like you said, every dog ultimately came from another dog, and every breed ultimately came from another breed. Um, now, when you get to even, even like, the cattle dog is a fairly old breed. I mean, it's not an ancient breed, right? But it's, it's been around for quite a while. Um, and so what I can say is that, you know, if we have a purebred Australian cattle dog, um, we have enough cattle dogs in our reference panel that I would be 99.99% sure, and I won't say 100 because Cause you can't. I'm a biologist. <laughs> I, I don't say that anymore. Right. I, you know, it's, I jinx myself. But, um, but we can see 
purebred animals clustering together, even with the more recently derived purebreds. So, uh, for example, the old English bulldog is not more than a couple decades old. Mm. But genetically, it is distinct from its founding breeds, which is the bulldog, the mastiff, um, and one other breed, I do believe. When a dog breed starts to breed true, that is, if you combine two cattle dogs, you're always going to get a cattle dog. Um, and they're always going to have cattle dog puppies. Uh, typically, genetically, we can start to distinguish how they differ from their founding breeds. Now, we can also uh, identify breed relationships in that manner. So we can say that, so for example, the Kelpie and the Coolie actually have a very fair amount of Australian cattle dog in them as well, right? So we can say that the Kelpie and the Coolie are cousin breeds and that they're probably very closely related to the Australian cattle dog. Uh, so our, our science is distinct enough that we can distinguish those closely related breeds in most cases. So if somebody tests a Kelpie, are they going to know that it's a Kelpie and not a cattle dog? Yes. Okay. That, that's just because we have a, uh, well, if, if someone tested a Coolie right now, and I think Kelpies will follow soon, um, we don't like to say that we can 100% distinguish a dog breed until we've got a large number of them in our reference panel so that we can confirm that not only do the dogs cluster together, but that we've got a, a very good uh, picture of all the genetic diversity within that breed. And so the more that you are able to, to do this similar structure to Dognition, which you guys are partnered with, which kind of does the behavioral thing, is the more people who have their dogs tested, the more information it gives you and the more samples you have. And, exactly. and, and it just, you know, progresses your cause. So you, Yes, that's exactly right. Now, you mentioned something that's interesting. So you get to a point where with dog breeds, where for cattle dogs, for example, since we were using them, where you breed a cattle dog to another cattle dog and you're going to get cattle dogs, right? You're not going to come up with some right. like, what the, where the hell, you know, where the heck did that one come from? <laughs> um, like you do with exactly. mixed breeds, right? Because some of them can look like nothing like their siblings or parent. So exactly. how many, is there, a, is there a known set that applies to every everybody genetically, like a set number of generations it takes to get to that point? Oh, man, that's a great question. And honestly, I, you know, I would say, and this is, this is, do not take any of my words with, without a grain of salt from like for the next 30 seconds. But what I will say is that once you get to the eighth, ninth, tenth generation of dogs, okay. so if you trace all the way back to your dog's, you know, D9 grandparent, um, the likelihood of that dog that single dog contributing to your dog's DNA is very, very low. Uh, it's, a, it's basically at that point, it's a game of chance, right? Okay. Um, and so, oh gosh, I would say, yeah, so that's where I'm at. I'd say that if you had a dog breed that was breeding true for like eight or nine generations, it's a good, a good bet that we'd be able to distinguish them genetically from their founding breed. Got it. So that's a good okay. sort of general gauge, off the cuff, 10 generations. Now that's 10 generations of, um, how did you say it, breeding true? So that's, yes, not 10, true. that's not 10 generations from the first pairing. That's 10 generations of, of, of getting litters consistently. Yeah. Okay. 
Interesting. Oh, this is so interesting. Okay, so we're talking with Dr. Aaron Chu, who's a veterinary geneticist with Embark DNA Testing. EmbarkVet.com is their website. It's my understanding that you guys are the best one out there. Would you agree with me, representative of Embark? (laughs) (laughs) Considering that I am a representative of Embark and also, also, you know, yes, first of all, as a rep, but also as a scientist, yes. Um, So why? Absolutely. So the reason, and I'm going to say this, as as a scientist who's worked in canine genetics, um, you know, since I was, since I was a wee child um, in undergrad, um, you know, the platform that Embark uses, and the reason, to be honest, why we're a little bit more expensive than most kids out there, it's research grade. Um, and when I mean research grade, I mean we took the most recent canine snip chip, the one that all the geneticists use to make their discoveries, and we made it better. So if you're looking for a test that has the most information and has the most accuracy and has the greatest chance of identifying new genetic variants that might contribute to behavior, to appearance, to disease, then Embark is your best bet. Got it. That's what I've heard. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, no, and, and you know, also as, as someone um, representing Embark, yes, yes, we're the best. Right, of course. <laughs> that too. But it is good, I mean, you know, from, from uh, you know, your partnership with Cornell University and this this whole, you know, 200,000, uh, was it sequences? Or, no, I'd that's not right. You, you could call them sequences. You can call them sequences. Pairs. Um, I think more people, yeah, more people call, prefer to call them markers. Markers, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, and the, the density, so of those 6 billion, now tell me if I'm saying this accurately, there's 6 mm-hmm. billion different pairs in the full, the full code of a dog, correct? Mm-hmm. And you, do you, does Embark, um, when you say that you're able to, you've identified or you look at it with the highest density, so you're kind of looking at the most information of that 6 billion, the highest percentage. Is that correct? Like that you're looking at actually um, the the 200,000 markers. Mm -hmm. uh, That that's the most of, of, so other tests that might not be able to, to give as much information are simply measuring fewer. Is that true? Yes. Okay. That is true. Okay. Yes. So, the way I like to think about it is if you have a field of, I, I, this is actually how I think about it. Um, if you have like a field of meadow grass, right, and you want to see what the exact composition of Timothy and alfalfa and whatever have you, other, you know, wildflowers in that field, um, and you pick 10 different clumps of grass you might get a good idea of what's actually in that field um, from those 10 representative samples. But if you do a, a thousand, you might get a much better idea. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And then we're talking a big, yeah. a big field with a lot of grass blades. A, a large, hairy dog field, yes. Right, right, <laughs> right. Okay, 
So let's take a break. And we are going to. So we've talked about the the part that a lot of um, pet parents are interested in, which is this whole I want to know what breeds of dog my dog is, because I just I can guess, but you just never know. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, you guys also measure uh, health related um, uh, sort of markers, right? Um, And which which is really important uh, for breeders and also for just individuals who have a dog and to kind of get this um, uh, glimpse into, you know, and we can talk about how this helps us, you know, care for our dog's health and also to help breeders um, breed responsibly because a lot of of responsible breeders, and unfortunately there's plenty of breeders who just pay no attention to health or behavior and just breed away. Um, But for responsible breeders who do it based off of how the traits, you know, if they see that this dog doesn't look the right way or, or behave the right way, they won't breed them or they might have their eyes tested or their hips tested or their hearts tested, but they're not doing those tests genetically. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And then I do want to get into this idea of also the genetics of personality, because that's very interesting. And we're going to try to squeeze as much of that in in the second half of the show. So let's take a quick break. We're going to be back talking with Dr. Aaron Chu, who is a veterinary geneticist with Embark DNA testing. Their website is EmbarkVet.com, and this is the most thorough, comprehensive test available for dogs. EmbarkVet.com. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country, but if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Missing Link, we cover the world of animals. This week, April 30th, it's an encore presentation of Best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Hear Dr. Nels help listeners and their animal friends with emotional, behavioral, and physical problems. It was a great show with help and advice for everyone. Enjoy it again or for the first time. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. 
Next week on Conversations Live, a special sneak preview of the story you need to tell by Sandra Marinella, an inspiring guide to transformational storytelling. Whether you have PTSD, are dealing with an illness, or just want to make positive change, Marinella's book can help. She shares riveting true stories that illustrate her methods for understanding and editing your personal stories to foster resilience and renewal. Join Vicki every Monday at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. And connect with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Giving local voices a chance to shine. Alternative Talk 1150. And now back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Eric, you risk turning this into a dance party with that song. <laughs> That's okay. Yep. It could be a dance party That's right. the dog show. Dancing and dog genetics, they, they fit well together. That's right. So we're and back. Most doggies were born that way. That's right. <laughs> Which is what we're finding out about today. Yeah, so we're talking with Dr. Aaron Chu with Embark DNA Testing, uh, Embark Vet dot com is the website that's embarkvet.com and you can get not just information if you have a mixed breed dog uh what kind of dog is my dog which we are doing with lois and i'm super excited our our kit is on the way and um i'm excited to test so we will definitely report the results back once we get those i think it takes uh, several weeks and uh, we'll definitely follow up with that and let everyone know what our little Lois is made up of. Um, but in addition to the dog breed part of it, there's also some health uh, health reasons why um, people might want to with their purebred dog and certainly breeders. Um, so, Dr. Chu, can you talk a bit about what those, give maybe an example or two of these genetic disorders that you can test for, and why would we want to know what if our dog um, care is a carrier? Oh, absolutely. So we test for um, over 160 genetically inherited risk variants, um, so mutations that are associated with increased disease risk. Um, so that's more than pretty much any other test can do in one go, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And Really, you know, there are some genetically inherited diseases 
that are pretty common in our dog breeds, not just dog breeds, but also our companion animal population. And um, so one of the best examples, actually, um, I like to talk about MDR1. Um, so MDR1 stands for multiple drug resistance one. It's actually a protein that helps to pump certain drugs out of the brain where they can do kind of weird things. Um, now, a lot of dogs, um, namely many dogs that come from herding breeds, actually have a mutation in this gene that makes it difficult for them to get rid of drugs that most dogs usually don't even care about, you know, as far as like what they can do um, side effects wise. Now, these dogs can have bad reactions to drugs that are used pretty commonly. Um, that includes, you know, high doses of parasiticides like ivermectin um, or a very commonly used sedative, which is called acepomazine, uh, certain cancer drugs. Um, they can't take those at uh, certain doses because they can get very, very ill. Um, and those symptoms go from being nauseous, having a little diarrhea, being a little woozy, all the way to basically, you know, Having, having a seizure or going into a coma. Um, and so if, as a vet, so I'm a veterinarian, um, if I see a collie dog coming in or a border collie or an Australian shepherd, I'm going to say, oh, we should probably check this dog for MDR1 or, you know, let's not give them these drugs. Yeah. But when you start to deal with mixed breed animals, um, Sometimes mixed breed dogs don't look like the dogs that they came from, like you were talking about earlier, Julie. And so actually my own dog is at risk for MDR1 drug sensitivity. He's mostly, he is mostly Labrador. Um, he's a lab mix. Um, I got him tested with Embark, and I never would have expected it. But um, he does have some breeds in his lineage that do carry MDR1 at some frequency, but he doesn't look anything like them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it- so that's the important thing. For mixed breeds, yeah, for sure. So this is something that I um, is really important that I end up actually talking about a lot in the work that I do, which is with dog behavior. And I just mm-hmm. met with a client yesterday, a new client, a border collie, who, mm-hmm. when they started him on a flea medication, he started mm-hmm. developing uh, reactive, phobic. Um, sort of edgy Mm -hmm. behaviors. And I've seen this actually over the years. And I, a few years ago, did some research on it just on my own to kind of figure out what was happening. And that, Mm -hmm. that there's certain, that this mutation, like you said, and it's interesting to know a little bit more about why, that it um, impairs the dog's ability to get rid of the medication to kind of get it out. And uh, with the one that I researched was... um, Fipronil, the drug Fipronil, and that it blocks chloride channels in nerve cells and mm-hmm. can cause anxiety all the way up to uh, convulsions. And what was interesting was that as I continued to dig, I learned that anti-anxiety and anti-convulsants actually open chloride channels in the nerve cells. So it kind of made sense that if I was witnessing, like, why does this six-year-old dog who's lived in the house his whole life and there's not been any change in family dynamic or food or anything all of a sudden now is phobic of for example this was a client years ago uh they live on the water on in west seattle over one of the ferry docks we have a lot of ferries in seattle and he started all of a sudden becoming phobic of the ferry horn 
out of nowhere, lived there for years. Why? Aww. Why the change in behavior? Because it doesn't happen for no reason. And we actually were right. able to trace it back to when they when they started him on this particular medication. And so now I'd be curious to know, does that mean that he probably has this mutation, even though he's he was actually a little mixed breed? Mm-hmm. That That's actually so that's a great question. Um, and I honestly. I don't know. I would recommend testing any dog that looks like it has hurting dog ancestry for MDR1. But most of, I would say, and I think that Brunel is on that list, you know, because of the prevalence of the MDR1 drug mutation, most commercially used anti-flea tick and heartworm uh, preventatives are actually tested in MDR1 null dogs, so dogs who have the mutation, um, to, to ascertain their safety in that populations of dogs, as well as in, um, you know, a more, uh, you know, a more less at risk uh, population. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that um, I know dogs who have had similar reactions to topicals. Um, I know cats who have had mm-hmm. changes to behavior. Um, I I would postulate, and this is. My hypothesis, and hopefully I'll be able to answer this question, like, fully, Julie, with, like, you know, peer-reviewed literature and stuff one day. Um, You know, I think that some breeds are more sensitive than others. I think that the way I see cats react to topicals sometimes is they hunch up, right? Have you ever seen this? They hunch up, and they look around, and they go, you just put something on my back, and it smells terrible, and it feels weird, Um, and I don't like this. I think that some dogs actually have that same sensation. Now, can I rule out the idea that your client's dog had an MDR1 mutation? No, I can't. Um, would I be surprised that an MDR1 dog was having side effects at that dosage? Probably I'd be a little surprised. But there are exceptions to every rule. And what we do know is that the level of tolerance uh, for any drug, it's a bell curve. It's not a yes or a no. Right. Um, so maybe that, you know, if it was a little dog and it was a, a lot of a lot of topical, you know, you might be seeing more dramatic side effects that a bigger dog probably wouldn't show. Yeah. You know, I don't know this dog. Yeah, these ones were actually uh, not topicals. These ones were um, oh, in, in pill was form. It a, yeah. The fip- oh, okay. Fipronil was the okay. one that... Fipronil was the one that I researched and like, I want to know how okay. is this working in the body? But, um, mm-hmm. it was a, it was actually a, a different one. Um, and the other thing too, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts about MDR one is a known genetic mutation, but there's probably yeah. lots of genetic probably mutations <laughs> that we just don't know about yet. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, 160 mutations sounds like a lot, and it is. I mean, mind you, dog geneticists have been able to find with, I would say, comparably less difficulty, we've been able to find a lot of mutations that cause disease compared to, like, humans, mostly because in dogs, it stands out like, you know, a red flag when you're looking at the genome of two litter mates, one of them has the disease, one doesn't, right? right. Um, and, you know, that's how a lot of diseases are found in humans as well. Um, but 160 isn't really, it's not, we're, you know, really, we're just scraping the surface on, on what we can start to discover 
as far as the genetic contributions to disease right. to behavior. Um, but that's a very good point that you make. So what's the other, what would be just another example about a, um, we talked about the MDR1 of, as far as a genetic disorder or health-related disorder that somebody m- might might help somebody to know that their dog has this so that they could therefore somehow help the dog medically. Is there an example you oh, could give? Yeah, oh, so many examples. One of my favorite examples, well, you know, it's favorite being, a, well, right. it's not a good thing when the I dog gotcha. has a I gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of my poster child examples <laughs> yeah. um, is, is HUU, which is um, short for hyperuricosuria and, and uricemia, um, which is just a fancy way of saying high levels of urate in the blood and uric, uric, uric acid stones, urate stones. Um, so these are kidney and bladder stones. Um, and, you know, if anybody listening has had a kidney or bladder stone, you know they're not particularly comfortable no. um, at any point in the process. Um, and so HUU uh, is actually caused by a genetic mutation that inhibits the ability of the kidneys to uh, absorb urate. Um, and so you get this high buildup of urates in the blood. Um, well, actually, yeah, and, and in the kidneys. Um and, and these can actually crystallize to form bladder stones. Now, these are relatively common in dog breeds like the Dalmatian. Mm. Um, also, the Black Russian Terrier and the English Bulldog. Uh, all three of those breeds are known to have this at some frequency. Dalmatians, almost I, I, every Dalmatian has HUU, virtually everyone. Um, but recently, there has been... Uh, some some literature that shows we've actually found it in all these other breeds too. We found it in a lot of breeds. Mm. Um, now, HUU can almost always be managed medically with um, just changes in lifestyle, changing the dog to a food that reduces the risk of um, urate stones forming, and just regular checks with the vet. You know, looking at the urine, taking a look via ultrasound at the bladder. But if you don't know about it Mm -hmm. um, and your dog has bladder stones, it can become and often does become a medical emergency. Mm. Um, Well, so I actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it's really it's it's a good lead into talking about behavior and then and then talking about personality, because Mm -hmm. in in working with dog behavior, looking at, you know, have to look at the dog as a whole being. Right. So. Gosh, if like, oh, all of a sudden my dog's, you know, acting different and the poor thing is plas- passing a stone, right? Or, or you don't know that there's something maybe medical going on that's causing the dog, the dog's behavior to change uh, versus just an environmental factor, like the way the owners are interacting with them or something like that. So, um, you know, there's not just not just strictly for health, but also to always keeping in mind, you know, is there something medical going on that's caused, especially if it's really out of character, like, gosh, you know, we've had this dog for years and he's never done that before. And now all of a sudden he's acting different. It's like, well, look at, look at medical stuff. It's one of the first places I go with it. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious, you know, I feel, and I'm curious to hear your, uh, your take on this. And I know that unfortunately we don't, you know, Embark DNA test hasn't been around for 60 years or 100 years. So unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't compare to 
dogs of even 20 years ago, but I feel like temperament and personality that there, I see so many dogs that are so reactive, for example, so sensitive to their environment. There's like a, a, a instability in temperament that is genetic. You know, the dog came that way, always been that way. We know in some situations, uh, you know, past experience and environment can cause dogs or trauma can certainly cause individuals to to feel that way. But, you know, this, you know, client gets a dog as a as a puppy and it, the dog is just always, for example, had separation anxiety, even as a puppy, just and like mm-hmm. a physiological response or I just feel like with as we continue to inbreed, and as I mentioned before, there's plenty of breeders out there, unfortunately, who just don't care about temperament or health. They're just breeding to make money. And that we're just seeing all these dogs more and more, I feel, who are compromised genetically. And it's causing families to have a really hard time with them. It's causing the dogs to really suffer. And it's landing a lot of dogs, unfortunately, in shelters because of unmanageable behaviors. And it feels mm-hmm. like even, even 15 years ago, and I would, I bet, you know, if we could go further back, and I, of course, wasn't doing the work, I wasn't even alive 60 years ago, but um, <laughs> it feels like there wasn't as much of that. I would, it's all anecdotal on my part, but it just seems like the the further we progress, the more unstable some dogs get and 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 it seems like now you guys are actually look, looking into genetics of personality can you say, can you speak to that oh yeah so as you said earlier we are um, partnering with Dognition for one of you know I think it's arguably the largest canine cognitive study that's ever been done yeah um, you know cognition isn't quite the same as personality but we're getting from that angle with Dognition. The other thing is, um, you know, I'm really excited for you to get Lois's results back. But in the meantime, what you can do is actually get on our website and search, hit the research tab of your profile, of Lois's profile. We actually have questions that are starting to really dig at things like the genetics of personality. Mm-hmm. You know, does your dog have anxiety issues when you leave the house? Um does your dog bark at shadows? Do they chase shadows? I know some breeds love chasing shadows. It becomes to the point that it's almost obsessive, right? We know that some breeds of dogs do have genetic predispositions to obsessive compulsive behavior. The Doberman, um, the Doberman Pinscher was the first breed where a, a locus, a genetic mutation, was actually indicated and said, "Yeah, no, this is this is what's causing this OCD in the in the Dobe." You know, that's not the only one, and we're really starting to dig at it and say, "Okay." What are these genetics? Because how helpful would that be um, if if we had an owner and we said, you know, and, and as a vet, it's so hard to parse apart the effects of genetics versus environment sometimes, sure. right? Um, what I will say is that especially with purebred dogs, um, you know, there's been kind of inevitable decline in the genetic diversity of, of, of certain dog breeds um, just because, um, you know, if you're taking from the same gene pool, it's hard to maintain genetic diversity. And I applaud every breeder who who wants to, to really work to keep their breed healthy. Um, and I've worked with some amazing, incredible breeders with, yeah. you know, with Embark. Um, 
But but on top of that, not only do you have you know a, a dwindling gene pool in some cases, you have an increase in genetic or environmental factors, right? The things that, first of all, in the 60s, obsessive compulsive behavior might not have been diagnosed in a dog, right? But also, I mean, think about the differences in the environments that our dogs live in now than they did 60, 70 years ago. Um, There's a lot more stimulus, right? So that being said, I would 100% agree with you that there are certain breeds that have behavioral predispositions and proclivities, right? They just haven't been mapped yet. And um, it's on but, the level of mental illness. I mean, we're talking about we're, we're diagnosing obsessive compulsive disorder in a dog. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think even <laughs> even people really appreciating. I mean, I did a, a, a ran an interview recently about PTSD in dogs mm-hmm. and really looking mm-hmm. at dogs, you know, emotionally and neurologically and genetically, that they can experience their version of these types of, you know, I think some people have a tendency to be like, well, it sort of feels like this, but it's a dog, so it's not. It's like, no, your dog actually has, like, canine PTSD, traumatized. And so to help us help these dogs that have OCD or PTSD and what we know about those um to a degree in how we can help humans, it's just it's just incredible how how alike we are as species who are not genetically the, the closest, but it it's just really something how how close we yeah. are. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I mean we are. If you think about it this way, dogs are the perfect perfect model to study human disease, and they're our best friends, which makes it harder and better at the same time, right? Right. Um, but I mean, all ma- I mean, mammals, mice, dogs, humans—we vary by a very small percentage of our genome. Actually, not so much at all. Like mm-hmm. on the order of like less than five percent, right? Wow. So we're not that—we're not that different. Yeah. So in the in the context of how we how we do research, it's it's important for us to respect that. We're, since we're so close uh, to care for how the animals are treated and and all that kind of stuff as we are um, sort of taking advantage of what great models they are for studying genetics and all that stuff. And that's another thing that's nice about this is that you guys are getting information from dogs who live in families as opposed to dogs who maybe are just in a lab. Um, so th- I knew this would go by fast. Um, this has really been so interesting and I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface. So, uh, I look forward to following up with you guys when we get our results from Lois and just keeping a part of the conversation because you're only going to learn more and make your test better as good as it is now. Um, this is a relatively new field and so it's just really exciting to, to, you know, hear what you, what you guys find in your work. And, uh, again, I just want to give out the information if you're interested in having your dog's DNA tested, either you have a mixed breed dog and you'd like to know, you know, what breed is my dog, what breeds make up my dog and, um, or looking for those markers, like you said, um, that can give you some information about maybe this dog needs, a 
you know, his or her urine tested would be a good idea every, you know, more frequently than the average dog because of the, the, the presence of a mutation that could cause the dog to have stones as one example of so many. Dr. Aaron Chu, thank you for your work and for your time today and uh, have a wonderful day there in Ithaca, New York. Ithaca is gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, gorgeous. <laughs> and thanks so much for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We'll be back next week live at 2 p.m. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.